Now we come to chapter 2, and here we have public prayer and woman's place in the churches. And this is something, I think, very important for us to see. Now, what you have here first is public prayer. And public prayer is for the public and for public officials. And we have that now, actually, in the first seven verses. And he says here, I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Now, this is something that Paul says here that Christians are to do, and I take it that these prayers were to be made in the church, and they were to be made for public officials. And what he's really saying here, if you want to bring it down to date, is just simply this. The Democrats ought to pray for the Republicans, and the Republicans ought to pray for the Democrats. And that'd be pretty hard for them to do. Many years ago, there was a very famous chaplain of the Senate. And there was a visitor there one day, and he was showing him through. And one of them said to him, said, what do you do? Do you pray for the senators? And he said, no. He says, I look at the senators, and then I pray for the country. And friends, that, by the way, is very good advice also. We need to pray for our country, and we need to pray for those that have authority over us. And if we're a Republican and it's a Democrat, pray for him. And if he's a Democrat or vice versa, well, let's pray for him, regardless of that. That's one place where a Christian can pray. Why? Well, for kings. Now, somebody says, yes, but are you to pray when it's a corrupt government? Well, that's exactly what Paul is saying here, that even if it's a corrupt government, we're to pray We're to pray for whoever's in power. And you must remember that the man that was in power in Rome was Nero. And yet Paul commands that we should pray for kings, for them that are in authority. And why? That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. And this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Well, Any government is better than no government. And that may be contradicted, may be questioned at least. Even an evil, corrupt government, if it really governs, is better than anarchy. Civil government is a gift from God. And very frankly, we ought to be giving thanks for it and praying for it. That is something that I'm sure many of us fall short of. Uh, praying for our government, the rulers, over. Now, if a man has corrupted it, if he's misused it, and that's certainly been done, and when you say politics are crooked, I agree with that. But at least there is a semblance of law and order. And we should pray toward the end that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in godliness and honesty, And what will this do? Well, it will do this. It's good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. 
who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. Now we have the reason of why. We're to pray for the government in order that the gospel might go out. That is the important thing, that the gospel might go out. Now, I believe that we actually are going to see in the future in this country persecution of Christians, I'm sure. And I don't mean church members. The church is compromised so today. It'll go along with whatever comes along. That is, liberalism will. But those that today are genuine believers in Christ may encounter persecution. Now, Paul was beginning to encounter it from Rome, and yet he says we're to pray. We're to pray for these leaders, and that is good. It's acceptable will of God. Why? Because God wants men saved. The important thing today for you and me is not to get a certain man elected to office. And that's one reason that I have never in my ministry, I never would recommend a candidate. They try When I came to California, I'd found out that had been the practice out here. And several folk were impatient with me because I would not at least post a list on the bulletin board of the candidates I'd recommend. Well, I'd never do that. I'm not called to do that. And I don't believe any minister is. I'm to pray for him regardless of who he is. Why? So the gospel can go out. That is, I want a man in office that's going to make it possible for me to continue on the radio and otherwise giving out the Word of God today. And that's the way that I think that the Christian should pray. And I think that's what Paul is talking about here. Now he says here, verse 5, and this is a very wonderful verse, "...for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus." Now there's one God. In the Roman Empire there were many gods. And today people are giving themselves some to pleasure, some to entertainment. Actually, the entertainment world has become sort of a religion today. And there are many devotees of that. There are many women that would sacrifice their virtue in a moment, and a man would sacrifice his honor in order to become a star. And I'm of the opinion there have been those that have made that kind of a sacrifice, and some didn't even get any notice at all. They didn't even get on the marquee out front. There are many gods today. But we need to understand there's only one God. He's the Creator. And there's only one Mediator. Now, before in Israel, you could go to the temple. There were many priests there. You could go through them. Well, Paul is saying now there's only one Mediator that you're to go to. You're not to go to any human being down here. No minister. It's not necessary. There is a Mediator between God and man. And we need a mediator. I need a priest. I have one, the great high priest. And it was the heart cry of Job way back at the very beginning. You'll recall back in Job 9:33, he cried out, Oh, that there was a dazed man betwixt us that might lay his hand upon us both. And Job was crying out, Oh, if there was somebody that could take hold of God's hand and then take hold of my hand and bring us together, and that there might be communication, there might be an understanding. Well, friends, 
We have today a mediator. The Lord Jesus Christ has come, and he has one hand in the hand of deity because he's God. He's able to save to the uttermost because he's God and because he's paid the price for your salvation and mine. Now, he's a mediator, but he's become a man. He can hold my hand down here. He understands me. He understands you. He knows you. You can go to him. He's not going to be upset with you. He's not going to lose his temper. He's not going to strike you. He's not going to harm you and hurt you. You say, well, I failed. I've done this. I've come short of the glory of God. I'm just such a failure. Well, he knows that. And he still loves you. He still wants to put his arm around you. You remember that Isaiah said in all their affliction, he was afflicted. Well, there are those that believe the better reading of that is, in all their affliction, he was not afflicted. Well, either way you read it, it's wonderful. And I'm not sure what God wants us to see it both ways. But I like it. In all their affliction, he was not afflicted. God went with the children of Israel through the wilderness. And you remember when they failed at Kadesh Barnea, he didn't say, well, goodbye, I dismiss you, I'm through with you, you failed. No, he went with them 40 years, but he went on ahead. You remember he gave Moses instructions when they entered the land, they were to do this, that, and the other thing. God went on, but you see, he waited for them. He did wait for them. He dealt with them patiently all of that time in all their affliction. He wasn't afflicted. He didn't break down and fail. He just stayed there with them. And that's the way he's done with me. And it's wonderful today to have somebody that is such a wonderful mediator. And we can go through him. And that's the reason we should go through him to God today. How wonderful it is. No use coming and telling me I might not be sympathetic with you. I might not really understand your case. He does. He's human. He's a daysman. He's a mediator. He put his hand in my hand. And we hear that song, put your hand in the hand. You don't put your hand in his. He puts his hand in yours. That's the wonder of it all. He has come down and he put his hand in my hand. And he took hold of me. But he holds on to God because he is God. And he's brought us together. How wonderful this is. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Now, this is the one the world needs to know about because there isn't but one way of salvation. That's the thing you remember that Peter said to the religious leaders there that day. There's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Oh, how tremendous that is. But that's wonderful because there's one thing about it. It will really bring you right through to the Lord. I was told in Canada I had to get on a certain freeway to get into Detroit. And if I missed it, I was in trouble. And I want to tell you, I did a lot of manipulating around. I got on that freeway and it just brought me right in. I was thankful that the man said to me, he says, there's just one way. And he was right. There's just one way. And today I'm thankful that I've been told there's one way to God, one mediator. And he's so wonderful. He's the only one that can bring us together today. And he can bring us to God because he is God. But he's also a man. He's the man, Christ Jesus. Now, friends, as we come 
here to verse 6. It actually concludes verse 5, and I'll read verse 5 again. For there is one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. And that word ransom is a very important word. That he gave himself a ransom. That actually means, the Greek word is lutron, that he paid a price for our redemption. We had to be redeemed. That means you and I were lost sinners. And he was the ransom. Now we move on. And Paul says, For this I am ordained a preacher and an apostle. And I would like to say here that when he says, I'm ordained, he's appointed. I think that would be the better word for it. I'm appointed an apostle. I am appointed, he says, a preacher and an apostle. Now, the word for preacher here comes from the word kerouks, and that is a trumpet, a herald, that which gives out the gospel. He says, I have been appointed, one to declare the gospel, and an apostle, and he says, I speak the truth in Christ and lie not. Now, that may seem strange to you that Paul would say that to a young preacher, his personal friend, but I think Paul is saying it because he knows that Timothy knows that that's true. I speak the truth in Christ and lie not. And then he says something that he didn't say to the churches. I'm a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth, or verity. He always said he was an apostle of the Gentiles, and that was true. But here now he says he's not only the one that is the apostle to give the gospel, but he's also the one to teach them. And I think that this is something that is tremendous. Now we come here to this matter, and he returns back to it, this matter of prayer. And he says, I will, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Now, this is a very wonderful statement that he's making here. Actually, when he says, I will, he's not, I don't think here, putting his will into it. This is a desire. I desire that man everywhere, that is in every place where believers meet, and this is public, quite obviously it's for public service. And he says, lifting up holy hands. Now, that was a custom in that day. It was practiced by the early church. And it revealed the dedication in the lives of those praying. Now, there are certain ones today that in their services do that. They're criticized for it, ought not to be, Nothing wrong with that, if that's the way you feel, lifting up your hands. I've always hesitated myself because I'm not sure about my hands, whether they are clean or not, clean physically, and maybe clean otherwise. And he talks about them being holy hands. And that would mean hands that are dedicated to God's service. And my friend, you ought not to poke up your hands in a meeting if those hands are not used for the service of Christ. If you can look back on your life and know whether you ought to poke those up in a service or not. Lifting up holy hands. 
and it was the custom in that day. Now he says here that this is his will, that they lift up holy hands without wrath and doubting. And this matter of without wrath, it means that all sins have been confessed. You don't come with anger in your heart, a bitter spirit, but that you come with all your sins confessed and without doubting. And you remember the writer to the Hebrews says that without faith it's impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And it means that we're to come in faith in prayer. I think actually one of the reasons, and there are several reasons why prayer meetings are not better attended today in our churches, and I'd like to go into that sometime, the different reasons, but one of the reasons is here people lack faith. They don't believe that God is going to hear and answer prayer. And judging from some of the prayer meetings, I do not mean to be irreverent, but I think the Lord apparently yawns during the prayer meeting. They're so boresome. And prayer meeting ought to be made by those, you can see, that have their sins confessed, that they don't enter it with bitterness in their heart, and that they come in faith, believing. And it's this kind of a prayer that will make a prayer meeting. Now, he says, in like manner also that women. Now, we come to this matter of woman's dress. And it'll be helpful to you here if you will supply again the word, I will. Now, he's giving the way men are to pray. Now, in like manner, I will that women pray this way. Now, will you listen to me very carefully because... I think this is very important for us to see today. We're living in a day when actually there are two extreme positions relative to the place that women should occupy in the local invisible church. And all of them use this passage of Scripture. One position permits women to occupy a place of prominence and leadership in all public services. They have women preachers choir directors and officers, no position is shut out to them. And as a result, women are not only prominent, but they're dominant in the church. And you find that true. Southern California always has had its share of women preachers. And ever since I've been here, I've carried on a very friendly warfare with the women preachers. They had a prayer meeting to pray for me because they thought I was being a little harsh with them. I didn't really mean to be that way. I just enjoyed carrying on controversy, and many of them today actually are my friends. And they're lovely ladies. Don't misunderstand. That's one side. Now, in this type of a denomination, why, you find them not only, as we've said, prominent, but dominant. And we have a denomination in Southern California founded by a woman. In fact, I think there are several. And they're a preacher in that group and some very fine people in it, he told me that they had never recovered as a denomination from that background. It brought them into existence, but it also stunted their growth because they were made up, I think, of some very fine folk. When I was pastor in Nashville, Tennessee, a tent was put up across the street from my church, and the Baptist preacher and myself, we were very good friends. We went over to see who it was, and we met the husband and wife team. 
the wife did the preaching, the husband did, did all the legwork, and seen putting up the tent and the benches and all that sort of thing, and he led the singing. And I don't know, that's all right if you like it that way, but I don't. Anyway, they had good meeting. She preached the gospel. And Baptist preacher and I went there as much as we could and gave it support. Now, God has used some of these groups today in a wide way. And I think, frankly, he's used them in spite of, not because of the position of women. Now, I may be a little extreme there, but bear with me. But there's another extreme position. And I don't agree with them either. They shut women out altogether from all public services. You never hear the voice of a woman in public in their meetings, not even in singing. And there are two groups in particular that I've ministered among them. I've had a good ministry among these people. And believe me, women are pushed to the background. And I think they've suffered a great loss in talent because of that. I think that women would have made a marvelous contribution to both of these groups had they used them. I think of the little story that's told, and I tell this in a facetious manner. I hope you understand. It was a little town in the Midwest, and there was a very prominent maiden lady in the town. And everyone agreed that she would have made some man a wonderful wife, but she'd never married, and she died. And the paper wanted to write up her story, but the society editor who had charge of the deaths, she was away on vacation. And they asked the sports editor if he would write up. And he wrote a little article about this lady, and he concluded it with these words. Here lies the bones of Nancy Jones. For her, life held no terrors. She lived an old maid. She died an old maid. No hits, no runs, no errors. May I say to you, I think that they might say that of many churches today that will not use the talent of women, and God can and will use them. Now, these are extreme viewpoints. Now, I think both groups today are beginning to relax. I think we're beginning to see that today. Now, why all this confusion regarding this rather practical issue? Well, let's see what we have here. And I think that the confusion has been brought about by misunderstanding of this passage of Scripture in particular, as well as some other. There's been an unfamiliarity with the Roman world of Paul's day and an uncertainty as to what Paul actually said here. And I'd like for us to see, first of all, the world of Paul in that day. Now, God has used women. We need to understand that. You can't go through the Word of God, how God used Deborah and Queen Esther and Ruth. And in the history of the church, a woman like Mary Fletcher, Priscilla Gurney, and there are multitudes of others that God has used in a wonderful way. But you see, in the Roman world, the female principle was in all of the heathen religions, and women occupied a prominent place. You take the worship of Aphrodite at Corinth, which was probably one of the most immoral things, and actually prostitution there was made a religion, and the thousand vestal virgins that were in the temple of Aphrodite up on top of the 
Acropolis there at Corinth, and they were really were nothing in the world but prostitutes. And they had disheveled hair, and that's the reason God spoke about a woman having her head covered, is because in all those religions like that. Now, in Ephesus, where Timothy was and where Paul had spent so much time, while women occupied there a very prominent part. That was the temple of Diana. And in all the mystery religions, there were these priestess. Now, what Paul is saying here is this, that this matter of sex is not to enter into the matter of public prayer. Now, will you listen to him with that in mind? Let's see what he said. He says, first, this is the way men are to pray. Now he's going to say, this is the way women are to pray. Now, my friend, may I say to you, Paul is saying women are to pray in public, but he's telling them the way they're to pray in public. And actually, the emphasis here now is upon an inner adornment and not outward adornment. Now, will you notice what he says? In like manner, this is verse 9, in like manner, I will also that women pray, adorning themselves in modest apparel, with godly fear and sobriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. Now, here is what he's saying, and this is important. Women are to pray in public, but when they pray in public, they are not to dress up from the standpoint of sex. They are not to go before God, all made up as if they want to appeal that way. Now, I want to make this very clear. I think that a woman ought to dress today as nicely as she possibly can and look as attractive as she possibly can. And there's nothing wrong with that. As long as she's appealing to her husband or she's not married to a man. And there's nothing wrong with that. I made a statement back in the last chapter of Proverbs, and I've been taken to task over it. And I'd like to read you a very lovely letter that's come from Fairfield, California. Let me read this. I never thought, and I'm reading now, I never thought I'd see the day when I would feel a need to take you to task over anything. Usually I agree with you everything that you say. But on Friday morning in your last study in Proverbs, I guess you hit a raw nerve. You were admonishing young men on choosing a wife, and you said, first of all, make sure she's a Christian. I agree with that. Then you said, and if possible, choose a pretty one. Really, Dr. McGee, do you think that's quite fair? After all, there are far more plain, ordinary-looking girls and women than really pretty ones. And pray tell where would they be if men chose only pretty ones? I happen to be one of those plain, ordinary-looking women, and I'm so glad my husband didn't choose one of the pretty ones, or I'd have missed out on 25 years of happy married life. I'm not really angry with you. How could I be when you've taught me so much of the deep truths of God's Word? I just wanted you to know that I think you ought to say a little something for us women whom the Lord did not choose to bless with physical beauty. Now, I want to say something to that woman and to others. 
May I say to you, have you ever stopped to think that when your husband fell in love with you and he proposed to you that he thought you were beautiful? Yes, he did. I never shall forget the night that I met my wife. It was a summer night in Texas, and we were both invited to a home for dinner. It was a supper dinner, and these friends were, frankly, trying to bring us together. I didn't want to go because I had an engagement in Fort Worth that night. My wife didn't want to go because she was going with another fellow. But that night when I met her, she'd never won a beauty contest. But that night I saw her. I never shall forget her dark hair, brown eyes. And there in candlelight, I looked at her and I fell in love with her. And I tell the story that I proposed to her the second date we had. And the reason that I didn't propose that first date was I didn't want her to think I was in a hurry. May I say to you, she was beautiful to me. And how wonderful it was. I have a notion your husband thought you were beautiful also. And I think women ought to dress that way. But my friend, when you go to God in prayer, you don't need that outward adornment. You need that inward adornment. And that's all Paul is saying here. He's not saying women are to pray. He's actually saying women are to pray. But telling them the way that they're to come to God. And I feel like that if a woman's going to sing a solo in the church or have part or make a speech, that she ought to keep that in mind, that her appeal should not be on the basis of sex. It's on the basis now of pleasing God. And believe me, you can't appeal to him on the basis of sex at all. That was the thing that characterized pagan religions. Now he goes on to say, verse 11, let the women learn in silence with all subjection. Now, this has to do with doctrine. But I permit not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Now, I believe that this is important, and some may not agree. The women led in the mystery religions of Paul's day. And you read my notes on Ephesians, you'll see how they did. And they were sex orgies. Now, Paul is cautioning women not to speak here publicly with the idea of making an appeal on the basis of sex. And he strictly forbade them to speak in tongues. That's in 1 Corinthians 14, 34. Now, will you notice verse 12 here? But I permit not a woman to teach you usurp authority over the man. For Adam was first formed, then even Adam was not deceived, but the woman, being deceived, was in the transgression, notwithstanding... She shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with sobriety. It was the sin of Eve that brought sin into the world. And through childbearing, every time she brings someone into the world, she brings a sinner into the world. That's all she can bring into the world. But Mary brought into the world the Lord Jesus. She brought the Savior into the world. And women are saved by what? Childbearing. Mary brought the Savior into the world. And don't ever say that woman brought sin into the world until you're prepared to say that woman brought the Savior into the world. And my friend, no man provided a Savior. A woman did. However, a woman is saved by faith, the same as man is saved by faith. And she's to grow in love and holiness the same as man. That's all that Paul is saying here. Now we come to the 
third chapter of First Timothy, and we have now come to a new section here, the officers in the churches. And this is, of course, very practical, has to do with the local church. And he says here, and I'm reading now, verse 1, "...this is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work." Now, it says, "...this is a true saying." That's better, I think, translated, a faithful saying. This is a faithful saying. This is a saying that stands the test of time, one you can depend on. And if a man desire, and I do not like that word either, I think a better word, seeks. If a man seeks the office of a bishop, and the word has in it the thought of the activity of his seeking the office. And I believe that a man that has the qualifications ought to seek the office. In other words, he ought to want a place where he can use the gift that the Spirit of God has given him. And if the Spirit of God has not given him the gift and the Spirit of God is not leading him, then it would be a tragedy indeed if the man sought the office of a bishop. Evidently, there were not just one in a church to begin with. There were several in a church. Now he desireth a good work. This is a place where he can serve in the church. Now, the word bishop here is a word that has been misinterpreted, and it also has been interpreted differently by different groups. Those that believe in an Episcopal form of government in the church, they put the emphasis here upon this word. And the word bishop actually means an overseer or a superintendent. And there is another word for this office. In the early church, the pastor was called by different titles. He was called a presbyter or elder. He was called a pastor or a shepherd. And he was called a bishop or an overseer. And the word minister was used of him, of course, also. And he was never called reverend. And I do not think any preacher ought to be called reverend. And reverend means terrible, by the way. And that may be applicable to some of us, but it means that which incites terror. And it's a name that only applies to God. But these are different words that are used. Now, I believe personally that elder and bishop are the same person. As I say, the Episcopal Church would disagree with that Altogether, every church that has that form of government, I believe that the elder, which is the Greek presbyteros, is the word applied to the person. That is, he must be a mature Christian. And we'll see that that was important. And then bishop, and that's the Greek episkopos, that applied to the office. Now, you have here the word elder and also the word bishop. And I think that they apply actually to the same individual. But regardless, a bishop never in the early church had an authority over other bishops or other elders. And he did not have an authority over churches. You do not find that in the Word of God. 
Even Paul, who founded churches, never spoke of himself as the bishop of a church or the one that was ruling the church in any way whatsoever. And therefore, we find that the minister, as we call him today, of the church, and that's certainly a misnomer because a minister applies to every member of the church. We're all ministers. That is, we all serve. And that is, of course, very important. Now, we are given certain positive qualifications and then negative qualifications. And here we are given in verse 2 the positive qualifications. A bishop then must be blameless. Now, that word blameless here can, I think, be misunderstood. You're going to be blamed if you take any office in a church. You're going to find out that you're going to be blamed. I was a pastor too long not to know that. But the important thing is the Word has in it the idea that when the accusation is made that it'll not be true, that is the thing that is important, that you'll be blameless in the sense that what you're accused of, that you're not guilty and Probably the best word would be not guilty. A man that's not guilty, and that is living a life of the things he'll be accused of. And that reminds me of my experience when I first went to downtown Los Angeles as a pastor, and I met Dr. James McGinley in Chicago, I guess the first few months after I'd been called there and was pastor. He said to me, how do you like being pastor of that great church? Well, I said, it's a marvelous opportunity, but I find myself in a very unique place. I'm accused of many things, and I can't defend myself. You can't spend all your time uh, uh, answering everybody. So I've determined that the thing I do is just preach the Word of God and not try to answer them because I can't answer them. And he said, isn't it nice that you're accused of something and you're not guilty? It's nice to be in that position. And that's what a bishop should be. He's blameless. He'll be accused of something, but he won't be guilty. Now, it says he should be the husband of one wife. Now, that can be taken in two different ways. The husband of one wife could mean that he ought to be married. And I'm of the opinion that that is probably the thought that's in the mind of Paul. But somebody's going to say he was not married. Well, those of you who've been with us through 1 Corinthians know that I take the position Paul had been married. I think Paul had had a wonderful wife, and she'd probably died, and he never married again because he's out as an apostle now. But I believe that he was married. He couldn't have been a Pharisee and not been married. And I think that that is true there. I remember when I first became a pastor, ordained, a friend of mine, he belonged to another church, and he was constantly, and he was doing more than kidding me. He thought I was entirely wrong. He says, you have no right to be a pastor if you're not married. And he gave me this verse, you should be the husband of one wife. But I think primarily the meaning is he shouldn't have two wives, the husband of one wife, because in that day, polygamy was a common thing. Bigamy was certainly prevalent. But a Christian 
to be the husband of one wife. And then the next word, he should be temperate. The word in our translation is vigilant. I like a better word than that. I like the idea of he should be cool and calm and not credulous. In other words, he should be a man who knows how to keep his cool. And then the next word here is he should be sober and probably sober-minded is a better word, and even still a better word is he's serious. He means business. That doesn't mean he shouldn't have a sense of humor, but he's serious about the office that he holds, and of good behavior. Now, I think the better word there is orderly. He's orderly in his conduct. He doesn't do questionable things. Uh, I know a minister that got himself in a great deal of difficulty here in Southern California. He came and talked with me. And I'm confident the man was not guilty of what he was charged of. They said that he had an affair with a certain woman in the congregation. I'm confident from the information that came to me from several sources, he was not guilty, but he was certainly careless in his conduct. They'd be out in a social group. He was a young minister, and he was here when I first came to California, and I was a young minister then, and I've been out with him, and I know that he does many careless things. And in his own church, they would be having a social gathering, and he would kid, and he would say to another man's wife, well, I'm going to take her home tonight. And he would take her home, and that fellow would take his wife, and then he'd leave her at the door, and then he'd go to his own home. And they did that with a great deal of kidding. May I say to you, that can arch eyebrows, and that can cause a great many people especially the gossips, to start talking. My feeling is that an officer and a minister, his conduct should be above reproach. Oh, kidding is fine, but don't let it lead to questionable things. And that is the thought that I'm sure that Paul had here. And he should be, now he says here, of good behavior. And that is the word that we're after, orderly. And he's given to hospitality, and that means that he's a hospitable individual. That means that he's the type fellow that invites his preacher to lunch, you know, that type of a fellow, hospitable. I like fellows like that, always have. I'm kidding now. And there are a lot of wonderful men of God like that around that really are hospitable. And I have the privilege now of doing something I never was able to do before, travel all over the country, and I meet so many wonderful laymen today. And many of these laymen, they just come and put their arm around me and say, now, can I help you some ways? Anything I can do for you? I go to certain places, and I go to the room, and there's a bowl of fruit there, and there's a bouquet of flowers there, and I find out some very fine elder and his wife put that there. And then I go down here to San Diego, and a tooth of mine that was kept broke off. And I needed a dentist. And a doctor friend of mine, they introduced me to a dentist. And you know, I go all the way to San Diego now, because he's such a wonderful fellow. Just one of these hospitable men. He's a deacon in the church down there. May I say, all across the land today, these wonderful people like this, 
Now let me read on. Apt to teach. And I'd emphasize that I do not think any man ought to be an elder in a church or a bishop in a church unless he can teach the Word of God. Now, I used to say to my officers, and some of them didn't appreciate it, and the reason they didn't appreciate it because they couldn't qualify. I used to say that I wish that it were possible for me to give a theological test to every officer. And if he didn't pass it, he wouldn't be an officer. And I still say that would be a mighty good idea. I never put it in, but you know, we retired preachers, we've got all the answers today. We try to tell everybody else how to do it. We didn't do it, but we're telling everybody else how to do it. But I do think that would be a good thing. Now we come to the negative qualification here in verse 3. Not given to wine. And I'm sure that's understood. Surely should not be a drunkard and not violent. That is, no striker. Or, let me give you my word, not pugnacious. And then the next is, not greedy of filthy lucre. And that means that he shouldn't have a love of money. The love of money, we're told, is the root of all evil. And he should not have that love of money. And that's led many an officer into trouble. The way they handle their own money, the way they handle their business that they run, or where they work, and the way they handle the church money. And I want to tell you, some need to be looked into. And this is nothing idle that Paul is putting here. And he should be patient, and patient means reasonable. I think that's a better word for it. He should be a reasonable man. There's some people not reasonable. You can't talk with them. You can't reason with them. Others you can, and not a brawler. Now, that means he's not contentious. Now, some men are constantly stirring up trouble in the church. They ought never to be made an officer and not covetous. Now, again, you say this is money lover, but this is a form of idolatry. It's not only the love of money, but it's actually the worship of it, putting it ahead of everything. And now we go on one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity in his own home. An elder should be the authority without being a dictator. And he wouldn't know how to rule the house of God if he can't rule his own. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Now, that's First Timothy 3, 5. Now, not a novice, and this is very important. This is something that we need to emphasize. Not a novice here means actually not a recent convert, one that is just not a new convert. Sometimes a man's converted one week, and the next week they make him an officer. I have him up giving a testimony, and I don't think he's ready for it. One of my criticisms out here, and I'll get letters on this, but I don't mind that because I declare what I believe to be the truth. I had the privilege of teaching the Hollywood Christian group for several years, over a several-year period, and I came to know many of these folks. And if there's one criticism that I have, since they are prominent, they naturally push to the front. And some of them think they've become theologians. And I think that the cause of Christ has been hurt by the Hollywood crowd who attempted to become authorities in things that are Christian. 
I think it's fine if they want to give a testimony. But when they begin to tell you, some of the old saints who've been Christians for years, about this doctrine and that doctrine and another, I say they've hurt the cause of Christ. As I say, I'll get letters on that, but that's all right. We want letters. Not a novice. That's being lifted up with pride. He fall into the condemnation of the devil. Now, that was the devil's great sin, was pride. That's the great sin of officers in the church. And it can be of preachers also. And it can be in any field, for that matter, but especially in the church. It's very reprehensible when it is there. Now, moreover, he must have a good report of them which are on the outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. In other words, if a man has a bad reputation outside, for instance, he doesn't pay his bills, or you can't trust him, or he's a liar, that man immediately is a candidate, not for an officer in the church, but a candidate of the devil. And he'll better represent the devil than he will the cause of Christ. Now, verse 8, we come to the deacons now. And here are the requirements of deacons. And we are told here, in like manner, must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not two-faced. And that can be a dangerous thing. A man that tries to please everybody or doesn't have the courage to stand his own. There is a fine balance between a Mr. Milktoast and a dictator. But an officer in the church ought to be somewhere between those two. And he should not be given to much wine, or not greedy of filthy lucre. And again, I'm not going to enlarge on that because I take it just like it is. I believe the Bible teaches temperance. And I think that's the important thing. I do not think the Bible teaches total abstinence, because you must remember there weren't many medicines back in those days, and wine was a medicine. And it can be a medicine if it's used that way. And after all, isn't about 50% of the medicines that you and I take today isn't the base of them alcohol. In fact, they found out a woman that was head of one of these temperance movements, she died, and she died of sclerosis of the liver. And they couldn't believe it because it had been caused by alcohol. And they found out that she had taken a tonic for years that was 70% alcohol. I'm telling you, she was teaching total abstinence, but she sure wasn't following it. She was really taking a medicine that she said helped her. It was 70%. So alcohol can be used in a way that's medicinal. But I think when it's used in the way of being a beverage, then's when the problem arises. It should be a medicine. And Paul's going to say that to a young preacher here to take a little wine for his stomach's sake. And that was because Timothy probably had a little trouble with his tummy, I guess, as a young pastor, he had trouble with a bunch of deacons. And that'll give you an ulcer quicker than anything. Now, friends, today we return back to the third chapter of 1 Timothy. And here we are seeing something of what would be called church government, the officers in the church. Last time we saw the requirements for elders or bishops 
in the church. And now we come to the requirements of deacons in the church. And again, the word that is used for deacon is a word, actually, it's translated minister. Paul and Apollos are called deacons. We find that the Lord Jesus is called a minister in Galatians 2.17. Government officials are called ministers, and that's in Romans 13.4. And then ministers of Satan are called ministers, 2 Corinthians 11.15. You see, it's a general term for a servant and a worker. And the very interesting thing in what we think is the place where the office of deacon began in the sixth chapter of Acts, the word deacon is not even used there, or the word for it. But I'm confident, and I think we have scriptural ground for it, that these were deacons that were appointed in the church. And a deacon, although he had to do with the material things of the church, that did not mean that he should not be a spiritual man. Because the great problem today is that we often put a man in an office in the church who has certain physical qualifications, but he has no spiritual qualifications. That is, if he has physical qualifications, he's been a successful businessman. He knows how to conduct business. And we think because he is able to do that, that he'd make a good deacon. And unfortunately, there are men that are appointed to office on that basis. And the one thing that we've tried to emphasize in First Timothy, and we would mention it again, is the fact that though the church is a local organization and it has to manifest itself in a community. It gets right down where the rubber meets the road. And they have to have a building. They have to have heat and lights. And a lot of these material things that don't seem very romantic or don't seem very religious. But the important thing is that it is these spiritual qualifications that that local church has a spiritual ministry and these men that are in office must have that. And we think today that these material qualifications must come first. Someone has put it like this. When a church ceases to be in touch with another world, she is no longer in touch with this one. And I agree with that 100%. Until the spiritual is emphasized... The church cannot do that which is material or that which is practical down here. Therefore, the deacons here, there are certain spiritual qualifications. Now, I go over this again. In like manner, must the deacons be grave? Now, I'm reading 1 Timothy 3, verse 8. They must, first of all, be grave. And that, we said last time, that means they're to keep their cool and not double-tongued. That means they're not to be two-faced. They must be man whose word amounts to something, and not given to much wine. As we said before, the Bible teaches temperance, not total abstinence. Now, in that day, this would not have been a problem. 
Today it is a problem. And I think today the church should teach total abstinence in view of the fact the way that alcohol is used and abused today. And the only way it can be used would be, of course, in the place, as we said last time, of medicine. I think it should not for the Christian be a refreshment or a drink and not greedy of filthy lucre. And that means having an insatiable love of money. And the suggestion here is that the man who handled the money of the church should be honest, man of integrity. And may I say that there's nothing that'll hurt a church more than for word to get out that the deacons are juggling the finances that money given to one cause doesn't go for that cause, and that money is being used in a way that it was not intended to be used, and they do not handle it in an honest way. We have discovered, I have as a minister and in radio, that for the most part, and I can say that as far as I know churches, that 99 and 44 one-hundreds percent of them are run by men of high integrity. But, you know, that little 44 one-hundreds percent, they are the ones that are muddy in the water today and are causing a great deal of difficulty. I very candidly have to say today that there are a few churches and a few Christian organizations I cannot nor will I recommend at all because I do know that the finances are not helped in an honest way. And the thing that the church, that local church, that's right down, you see, where it has to get into shoe leather. If there's one thing it should present to the world, it is the fact that it is honest and that it is a place of high integrity in financial matters. Now, will you notice here, he says in verse 9, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. Now, the mystery of the faith means the revelation of the gospel in Christ. You see, the faith is not the abstract quality of faith, but it is the doctrines of the faith. And these doctrines were not revealed in the Old Testament. They are a mystery because They're now revealed in the New Testament. And we're told that the early church, they continued in the apostles' doctrine. That was the faith of the early church. It should be the faith of the church today. And it should, before the world, represent that faith. Now, there are a great many think it's outmoded, that it should be changed. And I noticed that there was a change of seven deadly sins, as they were called, that have been brought up to date. And this was an editorial that appeared in Life magazine years ago. And I'm just going to quote part of it. It says, judging by the amount of deploring, they now receive a current list of the seven deadly sins would go like this. And now they list the new seven deadly ones selfishness, intolerance, indifference, cruelty, violence, destructiveness, and replacing lust, of course, prudery. 
Now, most of the deletions are self-evident. Lust, for instance, has become as commonplace as the neighborhood newsstand or a cinema. Gluttony may sometimes give a man a cholesterol problem, but not much of a theological one. And words like covetousness and sloth simply seem antiquated. As for the additions, we have omitted new sins that appeal only to one segment of the population, such as irrelevance, which would probably head the sin list of the young. Some of the young would probably also object to including violence on the list. This minority is welcome to substitute another sin of its choice, such as hypocrisy. There should be no youthful objections to inclusion of destructiveness in as far as it means destruction of the environment. Old people might hope for hair, noise, and incivility. It will be argued, no doubt, that our revised list of deadly sins actually perpetuates several of the old standbys under new names. Selfishness for covetousness, for instance. Maybe so, but the old names are obsolescent and need changing if sin itself is to retain any contemporary moral force at all. After all, sin is a concept well worth saving. Well, I should say it is, but it hasn't changed. But sin is still sin. Human nature is still human nature. And these requirements today that are put down for these men hold good today if the church is to represent the Lord Jesus Christ here on this earth. And if it is to be a church in the community, it is to hold to, as the officer should hold to, the mystery of the faith. That is the New Testament doctrine. And that sin is sin, and these sins can be labeled and they're labeled very clearly in the Word of God. Now, let's move on. And this is to be held, of course, in pure conscience. Not a conscience, as we'll see in the next chapter, seared with a hot iron. And let these also first be proved. Then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. In other words, a man should not be shoved into that office the next month after he joins the church and before it's proven that he is the type of man that the Scripture outlines here. Now, there's a word here for the wives, not only for the man, but also for the wives. And wives of deacons must measure up to certain standards. Now, let me read at verse 11. Even so must their wives be grave, that is, they should be serious, they should be able to be calm and cool, and not slanderers. That means they're not to be gossips. A gossipy wife of a deacon can cause a great deal of trouble in the church, and then sober, sober-minded, and faithful in all things. That is, faithful to her husband, and faithful, of course, to the cause of Christ and to Christ himself. Now he goes on here, let the deacons be the husbands of one wife. That's the same rule for the elders, ruling their children 
and their own houses well. They have certain personal requirements and certain family requirements, you see. For they that have used the office of a deacon well purchase to themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Now, a deacon who serves well will become a man to be trusted. And boldness here is confidence and courage in witnessing. That is, he has a spiritual office primarily. And that is very difficult to get over to the deacons. I remember one man that was a deacon was asked to serve as an elder. Oh, he says, I don't think I'm spiritual enough or I know enough about the Bible. The fact of the matter is that same confession that he made that he couldn't be an elder should have been used to keep him from being a deacon, but it apparently didn't because he was a successful businessman. And I never felt that he was a very good deacon, although that he was a very successful businessman. Someone has said, when is a businessman not a businessman? And that's when he's a church officer. And I think there's some truth to that. Why? Because of the spiritual requirements. And that they have not attained to that level that should represent the church, you see. Now, Paul goes on to say here, verse 14 now of 1 Timothy 3, "...these things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly." You see, Paul was in prison hoping to be out of prison. And if he was out of prison, it was after his first imprisonment, and he hoped to join Timothy. Paul was in Macedonia, and Timothy was in Ephesus. Now, verse 15, he says, "...but if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Now, this is a very important verse. I gave this as the key to the epistle. I think this letter here would be a book of church order for the local church in the absence of Paul, you see. He says, I've written this to you so you'll know how to act. And he says, in the church of the living God, the church that is the church, and the pillar, and the ground of the truth. Now, this is, may I say, I think a very interesting expression here. The pillar and ground of the truth. The word pillar here, actually, it means the stay and the prop of the church. And the word for pillar here is that which is foundational. So if I may translate it here, because the idea is that the church is the pillar. It's the bedrock, and as such, it is the prop or support of the truth. In other words, if the officers do not represent the truth, then the church has no foundation at all. It has no prop at all. It can't hold up the truth of God. And I don't care how much they talk about that they do hold the truth. I knew a man once he was a deacon. He carried a Bible, the biggest Bible I think I've ever seen. When he came in, he was always weighted down on one side, but he was a man that you couldn't depend on. Actually, there was some question about the man's integrity. 
And he hurt the church. He absolutely hurt the church and brought it into disrepute. Therefore, the whole point Paul is making here, I want you to know how to act in the church, not manners, but how your life is to be so that when you're outside, that you are part of the prop of the truth. You represent the truth. Oh, that's so important. Now, verse 16, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the nations, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Now, actually, this probably was one of the earliest creeds of the church. Some think that it was one of the songs of the early church. Without controversy, we are told here, and that's a very interesting word that we have here, without controversy means confessedly or obviously, and notice this, that great is the mystery of godliness. Now, that is that God is going to bring into this world in which we live. He's going to remove sin and going to bring in godly men and godly women. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit. That is that great statement that is made here. And this, I think, is certainly Paul teaching the virgin birth of Christ. And it speaks also of Christ's existence before his incarnation, and that it was spiritual, of course. He was in the form of God, Paul says in Philippians 2, 6. He was the effulgence of God's glory and the express image of his substance, the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews 1, 3, and that God is a spirit, and the Lord Jesus himself said that in John 4:24. Now, from this condition, as God, not seen with human eyes, he came into manifestation, into sight, if you please, in the flesh. He became a man, and he entered into human conditions. And under these human conditions, the attributes of his essential spiritual personality were veiled. In fact, that's the thought that John gives in his gospel. The Word became flesh, that is, was born flesh. Or, we're told, he pitched his tent here among us. He was born flesh. He was made flesh and took his place here among us. And the thought there, he was veiled in human flesh, just as God was not visible in the tabernacle, then he tabernacled here among us in human flesh. But now, since he's a human being, then he's like we are. We can know something about God. But under these human conditions, the attributes of his essential being was veiled. He did not appear to man what he really was. He was not recognized by them as who he was, the one who in the beginning was God and was with God and was God. And all things were made by him. Why, he came a little helpless baby 
and he was the image of the invisible God, as one with God. And he had all power in heaven and in earth. But down here, he took upon himself human flesh. And as a result, why he was treated down here as an imposter, a usurper, a blasphemer. He was hated. He was persecuted. He was murdered. He was poor. He was tempted. He was tried. He could shed tears. He was a man of sorrows. Now, in all of that, He was not justified in the flesh, you see. He came out of the sphere of his spiritual being and came down to this earth. And down here, why, he took a lowly place. But now, you see, as it says here, he was manifest in the flesh. This is the way the world saw him, but justified in the spirit. And there were times when his glory broke out down here. There were revelations and expressions and witnesses of who he really was when he was down here. That was seen in his virgin birth and the presence of angels there. It was seen at his baptism, at his transfiguration, and at the time they came out to arrest him and the things that even happened at his crucifixion that caused the centurion there to say truly, This is the Son of God. But it was when he came back from the dead, we see him now justified. And he now has gone back to the right hand of God. No enemy can touch him from now on. He'll never be dishonored again. No one in his presence will ever be able to do that again because he came down here. And the fact that he's gone back there... Now, it means our justification, because down here he was delivered for our offenses. He was taking our place as a sinner. Now he gives us his place up yonder, and we're justified. And today he's justified in the Spirit up yonder and of who he really was. How wonderful this is. He was delivered for our offenses, raised for our justification, for our righteousness today. He was seen of angels. He was when he was here. He didn't see angels. They saw him. And today, he's gone back. And I'm of the opinion all of the created intelligences of heaven worship him. Why? Because he came down and wrought redemption for mankind today. And the little man down here hasn't caught on yet that this is going to be the song of eternity, the song of redemption. Now he's preached unto the nations. That's what we're doing today. That's true. And believed on in the world. There are many today that are trusting him as their Savior and received up into glory. And he's at God's right hand. In fact, at this very moment, he's right up there, friends. And by the way... Have you had anything to say to him today? Have you talked with him? Have you told him that you love him? Have you thanked him for something? How wonderful he is.